If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. Taking on a larger portion of text this morning, obviously we won't exhaust the text, but in doing so, I'm going to shift up a little bit, and I'm, going to, I'm actually going to read as we go through, instead of reading ahead and all of that. We're going to look at, in some sense, the entire chapter. We will focus more narrowly for most of the sermon than that. But uh, let's pray before we look into God's Word. Lord, this is Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would take Your Word and accomplish Your purpose. That Christ, as has already been prayed, would speak through Your own Word, Lord, in a living voice to Your people, calling some to faith, nurturing faith in our trust in Your great promises. Do Your work in our hearts, Lord. Bless the preaching of Your Word. Help me to preach it in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Help us to hear it as the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Giving it, therefore giving you the due reverence that you are due. Thank you that you are our creator and sustainer, that you are our redeemer, and that we can be encouraged in the faith this morning as we look into your word. So bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lift high your son. Accomplish all of your purpose. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. You can see the title is The Scroll and the Resurrection. I heard a quote this week that, that sort of stuck in my mind. It uh, wasn't from a godly person. but it, They said, if you are small, if you are small, you either need to be fast or have big friends. <laughs> or both. If you are small, you either need to be fast or have big friends. And an essential part of Christianity is us embracing our smallness. Is us embracing our weakness. Is us embracing our slowness. We are slow. We are small, spiritually speaking. By nature, we resist this lesson, don't we? But the news is even worse than that. Truth of the matter is we were born dead in sin and trespasses. Unresponsive to God. Needy to the nth degree. But my goal today is to encourage you. And especially I'm aimed at, as I should be every Sunday, but just saying this out loud, I'm aimed at the people of God. I'm aimed at those who are trusting Christ this morning. I want to encourage you. I want to see the resurrection and the resurrected Savior encourage and strengthen you. But the irony is that doesn't mean if you're not in Christ, this sermon is not for you. Because everything we need for encouragement and strength as Christians is what you need to see your need and to come to faith in Jesus. Because the gospel is beneficial for believer and unbeliever. I don't know where you are today. But I'm I'm seeking to lift Christ high. I'm seeking to tell you, Christian, that you have a big friend. You have a big friend. You have the biggest friend. So my goal is to encourage and strengthen you in your faith and not in yourself. 
but in Christ, our risen Savior. But you will only be encouraged if you see yourself small and needy. I want to do this from Revelation chapter 5. Show you what I mean when I say you have a big friend. Revelation chapter 5 is one of two bridge chapters in the book of Revelation. They bridge together everything that's come before in 1 to 3 with what's going to come after in 6 to the end. Very symbolic language here. If you, if you use a crass literal method here, you're going to be drawing some really weird pictures. But this is, this is apocalyptic literature. It's highly symbolic. It has meaning and we're going to seek to bring out some of that this morning. These two chapters are connecting chapters. And here we get a glimpse of the worship of heaven. I'll give you just a quick, very general breeze through the book of Revelation. Uh, outline something like this. But I want you to remember as we start, Revelation was given to the church to encourage and strengthen the church in the church's faith in Jesus. It never was given to answer all eschatological questions. It wasn't a sealed book that only applied long, long into the future. You can see that by reading it. But here's here's a first blush at just a general um, outline. In Revelation, we see a glorious Christ in chapter 1 with a struggling and persecuted church in chapters 2 and 3. A church that needs a renewed vision of the glory of the lion lamb in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 where we find it. And then 6 through 19 so that that church, those people, the people of God can live victorious through the struggles of life in a fallen world that is under judgment. And do so, chapters 20 and 21, with a glorious hope beyond this age in the new one that will come. And one of the major lessons, see, a lot of times we shy away from Revelation, don't we? We shy away because all the symbols and we don't think we understand all the symbols. And, but one of the things that will help you as you read the book of Revelation is to look for one of its major lessons. And one of the major lessons of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. His glory, His grace, His goodness, the victory that we have in Him. So look for, and that's what I'm focused on. That element is what I'm focused on this morning. I've already said I won't exhaust chapter 5. I promise you kids we won't be here for three hours. Just two and a half. No. (laughs) But mostly we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. But the main thing I want you to come away with this morning is this. The main point. Because Christ is risen and reigns, we have hope. The hope of final justice and redemption. Therefore, worship Him with hearts full because of His grace and glory. Because Christ is risen and reigns, we have the hope of final justice and redemption. Therefore, worship Him with hearts full because of His grace and glory. The first thing I want to look at is a sad dilemma in verses 1 1 through 4. The scroll. The sad dilemma of the scroll. We're not used to using scrolls. We don't think much about scrolls. But, but this, this was relevant in this day and there's a lot for us here. He says this in 5.1, Then I saw in the right hand, the hand of power and authority, I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, 
a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There's this scroll in the right hand, the hand of authority and power, and it's sealed with seven seals. And we're not used to that. We're used to books. But a scroll was a lot of papyrus sheets glued together. They would take the papyrus plant and they would process it and make out of it these sheets and then they would string them together and make a long scroll and you would see this one doesn't have a dowel in it but a lot of scrolls would have a dowel in them and maybe two dowels uh, depending on their their length and uh, with, with writing on them and so they were making their paper out of papyrus and so they would glue these sheets together and it would be a long continuous sheet and it would be smooth on the front and a little bit rough on the back And so normally you would only write on the front. These scrolls could be up to 32 to 34 feet long. You can see why they'd want to roll them up on the the dowels or something. It'd be kind of hard to drag around a 32-foot scroll. But normally, like I said, it was written on one side and rolled up. But if you desired to communicate everything you wanted to communicate on one document, sometimes you would have to write on the back too. It would be a little more difficult to write on the back because it was rough, but you could do it. Now this scroll that's referred to here in chapter 5 is not the Lamb's book of life. That will come later uh, in the book. This scroll is the summation of the completion of all of God's purposes for redemption and judgment. Well, how do I know that? Well, mainly because of the way the rest of the book plays out as the seals are broken and, and the scroll is open. But this is the summation of the completion of God's purposes for redemption and judgment. And it's written on the inside and on the outside. And symbolically, that's a way of saying that this is the fullness of God's purposes of redemption and justice. The scroll is in the right hand, the hand that represents power and sovereignty and authority. And it was sealed. And in in that day, when you're thinking of sealing, when a legal document was complete, A lot of times it would be rolled up, you'd put another sheet of papyrus around it, and in the overlap you would put, you'd drop a blob of wax to to hold it together, to seal it, so that it couldn't be opened. And sometimes a signet ring was stamped into that wax. The authority uh, behind the purpose of the scroll would put their, their signet ring, or their representative would put their signet ring in the wax and it was sealed by the authority of that ruler and therefore only the proper authority could break that seal and open that document not just anybody was allowed to open the document only the proper qualified authority and if you were a really important this i mean the people he's writing to would understand this they've seen this they know about this if you are a really important authority then you would seal the scroll with seven seals. You'd put seven drops of wax on it and signify it with the ring. 
Example of this is the last will and testament of the Emperor Vespasian. His, te- his last will and testament was sealed with seven seals. Seven there, the number in Revelation, again, all of this is symbolic, and the number is representing perfection. But even then in the practice of the day, that was a document perfectly sealed by a high authority. And it could only be opened by the person designated by that authority to open the seal. So when the seals, only only when the seals were broken, could what was written inside that document be executed. So thinking of the last will and testament, Vespasian's last will and testament, the, the things that he had laid out in his last will and testament were sealed up by the seals. And the things that he'd laid out there could only be executed, you know, obviously upon his death, and they could only be opened by the executor or the person that he had assigned. So, But only when the seals were broken could the content of the scroll be enacted. And once it was opened, what is written inside takes place. So that'll help us as we're trying to figure out this drama here. So in Revelation 5, the drama concerns breaking the seals. Only as they're broken and the scroll is open will God's purposes come to pass. God's purposes in redemption and, and, and judgment will not be completed. They will not come to pass unless those seals can be broken and that document can be opened. So that's going to help us. Now look in, back in verses 2 or 3 where the angel asks a question in verse 2. Who is, because I'm wondering, you know, if you're wondering, if you've read this before, why is John so sad about this scroll? And the angel asks, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to assume the responsibility for executing God's purposes in redemption and judgment? Verse 3 is the answer. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one was found worthy. No one in all of creation was worthy to open this scroll. What What doesn't happen if the scroll is not opened? God's purposes of redemption and justice, judgment are not completed. So now you know why John was so sad. Look what it says. And right here it says, No one in heaven, no angelic being, no one on earth, no human being, none of the 28 Buddhas, not Muhammad, not the Pope, not Bill Gates, no one was worthy to open the scroll. No one under the earth in the realm of the dead. And therefore it says, John weeps. Look what it says about him. I began to weep softly. No, he's boo-hooing. He's ugly crying. You ever heard that term? (laughs) This is not pretty crying. This is ugly crying. Tears are flying. He's wailing because it says he weeps loudly. He is very upset. In his vision, because he knows that if the scroll can't be opened, God's purposes can't be completed. And that is upsetting to him. So he weeps loudly, for no one is worthy. No one could take it and break its seals. False religion has no answer. 
Nobody could break the seals. Liberal Christianity, which is like a jumbo shrimp, that's a contradiction in terms, has no answer. Stop playing. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, go do something else. You're wasting your time. Atheism has no answer. You don't even have a foundation for justice. And certainly no redemption. Nobody on earth has the answer. No creature can open the seal. Nobody can help. John is distraught. But God. But God. Secondly, look in verses 5 and 6. The decisive victory. There is one who is worthy. But he's not just one of the creatures. He is a special representative. Look what it says. One of the elders said to John, Stop crying. Weep no more. Dry your tears, John. Behold. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Look what it says about this, this person that they are the lion of the tribe of Judah. That this person is the predicted king that was to come. Predicted in Genesis 49, 8-12. through 12. Where is this coming from? We go from the last book of the Bible to the first book of the Bible. You can see on the slides or you can turn there with me. But in Genesis 49, verses 8-11, it says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares to rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The rule. And the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes. Until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him, watch this, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Which points us to Revelation 19 and him treading the winepress of the wrath of God. King of kings and Lord of lords is who we're talking about. Fulfilling this prophecy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Jesus, according to his human nature, is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Just like Solomon. Just like David. Those who pictured Him. He is the promised King of the Messianic tribe. He is the one who reigns with both grace and justice. He is the one who redeems and judges 
Because He, and only He, is the Lion of Judah and the fulfillment of that passage and every other passage in the Old Testament that points us forward to this glorious conquering King who will come. And the Jews knew that part and they grasped it and that's what they were looking for immediately upon the arrival of the Messiah. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but it says something else here. Look, He's also the root of David. He's the root of David. Not just a shoot from the branch of David. And He is that, according to His human nature. But being the root of David... He's the source of David. He's the Lord of David. Passage Jesus used, and if you're taking notes, you can write these down. I just don't have time to go cover them. Matthew 22, 41-45 is where Jesus confuses His enemies when He says, Who is the Messiah? He's David's son. Well, if He's David's son, why does David call Him Lord? Because He is Lord. He is the root of David. He is the source of of David, predicted in Isaiah 11 and on through. This one, this one, this, this elder is telling John to look at is the, the, the prophesied king who was to come. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the root of David, not just his son. He is his son. But according to his divine nature, he is the root. See, in Jesus, you have one person with two natures. Joined together, never separated, never mixed together. In Christ, you have a divine nature and a human nature. In one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that being pointed out here as we look at these different titles for this one who is standing here. You don't have to weep anymore, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Look what it says he's done. He's conquered. He conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered and He can open the scroll so you don't have to worry, John. Redemption, judgment, justice, it's going to play out. It's going to happen. So John is told to look at the Lion, right? Look at the Lion. And so he turns to look and what does he see? How did the lion conquer? Look in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb. Look, there's the lion. He's a lamb. He's a lion lamb. Symbolic. We're piling stuff up here. We're mixing metaphors because it's apocalyptic literature. It's teaching us about Christ. And he says, what I saw when I looked was a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He's told to look at the lion. And he would expect to see a lion. And if a lion has conquered, that means he has routed his enemies violently, right? I mean, you ever seen a lion conquer? No, this, this lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered in a different way. He's standing as though a lamb slain. 
He sees a lamb that looks as if it had been slain. But it, so it has to be the marks of the, of the slaying are visible. How did Jesus reveal himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus when he broke the bread? Don't know. But he broke it in the way he always had. But when, imagine lifting up the bread to break it and the marks of the cross being visible. John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Lamb. You know, anytime something is repeated, it's important, right? Here, in this book, John uses lamb 29 times in 12 chapters. So it's important to understand what we're seeing here. What, is, what did, the, what did the John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How? By doing what was pictured in all of those Old Testament sacrifices, dying to pay the penalty for sin. Look back in chapter 1 if you're flipping in your Bible. You know, I told you chapter 1 is a revelation of a glorious Christ, and I don't have time to go there. But when John had the vision of Christ in chapter 1, it was so glorious and so awesome and so not a sissified Jesus that he fell on his face as though dead. He's not still the baby in the manger. But it, look what he's done. Look what it says in verses 4 to 7. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. We're going to see that. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Kiss Him lest He be angry, Psalm 2. To Him, now watch this. If you're a child of God, if you're trusting in Jesus, own this. Watch this. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By His blood. By being slain for us. And made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him. There are the wounds, right? And all of the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. Amen. Look in chapter 5, verse 9. Why was he slain? They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. What happened? And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Christ died for a much bigger people than just the Jews. He died for a people. He was slain for a people from every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and language. A specific people. Not a guessing people. It is not as though it might or might not have happened. Everyone that was given to Him before the foundation of the world, He died for. He accomplished their redemption. And He will apply by His Spirit with the word that redemption to his bride. Christ was slain for us. So He brings about redemption. 
to redeem. He died to save us from our sins. And see, I'm going to specify you who may not be trusting in Jesus this morning for a moment. Are you trusting in this Savior? This risen, this glorious Savior who is so, lo- so much loved that He would come to live for His people. He lived under His own law, fulfilling it in thought, word, and deed, providing a perfect righteousness. He took the guilt of us onto Himself and died to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised from the grave on the third day, proving it's all true. And on the basis of God giving His Son, He commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in His Son. And my question to you is, are you trusting in Christ and in Christ alone this morning? It's not, I didn't ask you if you did your best and he'll do the rest. Your best is a mess. You have not kept his law in thought, word, and deed, no matter what you've done. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness in filthy rags. The wages of sin is death, I'm telling you. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord because he is the lion and he is the lamb. He has paid for our redemption and He gives it freely if we will receive it. Have you received it? Have you repented? And are you repenting? Have you turned and trusted and received the Lord Jesus Christ? Is now He your hope and your delight in what you live for? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Well, look, He's a lamb as though He had been slain, but He is standing. He is risen. There we go. He is risen. See, you're afraid to speak when somebody's preaching, aren't you? Go ahead. Saying amen is like saying sick him to a dog. You just go right ahead. (laughs) Standing as though slain, risen. Second Adam, true human nature. He represents us. He died for us. And as true God, He's raised for us and reigns for us. And He qualifies to open the scrolls. And He is glorious. Look what it says about this Lamb. I'm telling you, you're going to draw weird pictures if you take this too literal. With seven horns. And seven eyes. Boy, it's beautiful. (laughs) It is when you rightly understand it. Because we're using symbolic language here. What do horns represent? Power, strength. You combine the number for perfection with the horns, and what do you have? Perfect strength and power. All power, all authority. He has all power and authority. What did he say in in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A thing that has already been done with results in that present according to the speaker there. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the world. The Word says in Hebrew 1 that this Lamb sustains everything by the Word of His power. That's big. You have a big friend if you're trusting Him. And if He can sustain the universe, your problems are nothing. He's using your trials to make you look like Himself. He has seven horns, which means He is all-powerful. See the divine nature coming out again? Lamb, slain, 
human nature. I'll let you go home, home and mess with this and let it mess up your mind. The divine nature never could die. The human nature did die. He's one person, so he died for us. But if divine nature died, hmm, we have some problems. But he's a risen Savior, one person. Sorry, I don't know why I confused you with that. Maybe you need to think about it. With seven horns, all power and authority, and seven eyes, perfect in sight, sees everything. Why? Well, the Spirit of Christ. This is talking about the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit we saw in chapter 1. Sent out into all the earth. Why? To get a people from all the earth. And He reigns in all the earth. His redemption being applied. He proceeds, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And He is everywhere. And He knows everything. And this Lamb is said to have seven eyes. Clearly identifying Him as God. And His eyes represent His ever-watchful providence for His church and against His enemies. You may think you're getting away with rejecting Jesus. Life might be going fine for you. The worst judgment you could ever experience in this life is for God just to give you over to your own way. And let you have your best life now. See, we don't judge truth based on our circumstances. The truth is proven by the resurrection of this Lamb. That's the most provable fact in history if you don't use a double standard. I'm not asking you to judge whether or not that's true. I'm telling you it's true. And calling you to repent. And if you're a child of God... Embrace again, re-embrace, re-mire up in this Savior who is the promised King, who is the sacrificed Lamb, who has all authority and power in seven eyes. You have a really, really big friend. Are you trusting Him? Do you have assurance of salvation? Are you sure when you lay your head on your pillow at night that if this is your last conscious moment on earth, that everything's good between you and God. Because it's appointed to people once to die and then the judgment. And I'm telling you now, you cannot sustain the judgment without Christ because you would have had to kept the law in thought, word, and deed. I'm not peeking in your windows, but you haven't done that. But He has. And He's done that for us. And He's on the throne now reigning. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. And He has accomplished our salvation as the Lamb of God who has been slain. But I'm telling you, when He's coming back, it's going to be more evident of those seven horns and seven eyes. He's not coming back, coming back as, a, as a, a suffering servant in humiliation. He's coming back as a conquering king. You go read Revelation 19. You don't want to be His enemy. You want to be His friend. And if you're trusting in Him, I didn't ask you if you had a perfect faith. I'm asking you what you are trusting in. If you're trusting in Him by His grace, you're His friend. And you have a mighty big friend. Submit to Him. Love Him. Serve Him. Enjoy Him. Tell others about Him. He is the Lamb slain, but standing in the midst of the throne, reigning. And coming again someday. The Lamb slain.
but risen. He is risen. He is risen look, look lastly at the glorious worship in heaven. And that's, I'm going to just basically read through this for you, make a couple of comments and, and, and be done. But look in verses 7 through 14. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand, him who was seated on throne in heaven, signifying that he has the authority to execute God's plans for redemption and judgment. And when he had taken the scroll, now watch what happens. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, offering up those prayers. Prayers the saints have been praying for redemption, for justice, offering them to the Lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and watch, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worship is loud in heaven. It should be loud here. And y'all are doing pretty good at that. With a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, notice we've heard about these before, and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Another evidence of His deity being worshipped. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb standing as though slain. The one with all authority to execute justice and redemption, who has taken the scroll, and as you go on in the book, begins to break the seals, and all of that happens. The climax of the drama in chapter 5 is the praise of heaven. And they're saying, worthy is the Lamb, and joy breaks out because the gospel is true. He was slain, and yet He's standing, and He's the centerpiece of heaven, and the Gospel is the source of their rejoicing. Grace and justice are accomplished and are being applied. Grace and justice kiss at the cross where the Son of God died to pay the penalty for our sins. Mercy and judgment come together and the one who died for us and was raised from the grave. And they are shouting, Worthy is the Lamb. We've seen holy, holy, holy. Now it's worthy is the Lamb. The people who would read this would know full well of the practice in the Roman Empire of that day that you might not be familiar with. But whenever a new Caesar was elevated to power. At his coronation, when he was placed on the throne, when he became the emperor, all the high officials 
And all the governors and the senators would gather around him and cry, You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. And the call to the church in that day was to say, not Christ is Lord, but Caesar is Lord. And they would not do it. And John is poking his finger in the empire's eye because he's saying he's not God. He's not the one with authority. He's not the one that reigns. There is a God in heaven who is worshipped, who has all authority in heaven and earth, whom you better kiss. Psalm 2. We know what ended up happening to the Roman Empire, and it will happen to this empire if it doesn't bow to the Son. This nation is temporary, and it's embracing its temporariness right now as it rebels against this lion and lamb. And John is saying, hang in there, church. Not just hang in there, but be victorious. Walk in the one that's on the throne. Trust him, this imposter who's claiming to be the one in power and wants to subvert his rule to live as Christ. I'm not done. <laughs> but they knew that practice, and you can see what John is doing. In the face of the empire's demand to submit to Caesar as Lord, he's writing to encourage a persecuted people to persevere in saying no. And living and proclaiming with the proclamation, worthy is the Lamb. Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, you have a big friend. And He will walk with you through whatever comes. And if persecution comes, He will walk with you. If they take your head, He will walk with you. If they crown it, He will walk with you. Don't deny Him for some puppet master. Anytime a ruler calls on you to disobey this king, you lovingly but respectfully and authoritatively tell them no. You defy tyrants when they defy Jesus. We want to be as good a citizens as we can. But when they start trying to step up onto the throne and displace this one, we must say no. Worthy is the Lamb. You have a big friend. What should we do with this sermon? A few quick points and I'm done. Own the fact that you are slow and small. What do I mean by that? Well, you were born dead in sin, lost. You can't save yourself. You need a Savior. But even as a Christian, you're needy every day of His strength, of His help to endure and to walk faithfully through His Spirit applying His Word to you. Own the fact that you are slow and small and can't save yourself. You can't sustain yourself. You can do nothing apart from this one who sits on the throne. Own your smallness. What am I saying? Deny yourself. What did Jesus say? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. No matter what you think of yourself and no matter how many weights you can lift, you are small and slow and needy. Because we're speaking spiritually here. 
Own the fact of your need. Rest fully in the Son who reigns. And own the fact that you have a big friend. Number two, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain, but is standing. And Christian, church, He is standing for you. Your representative with you, in you, never leaving you nor forsaking you. He is the good shepherd who had the authority to lay down His life for the sheep and to take it up again. And He leads you to the still waters of His grace if you will drink. Hope for this life and the next. He is worthy to open the seals. The Lord of Lord and the King of Kings who executes both the justice and the redemption of God. So own your smallness, own your big friend, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and own your purpose for Him. Join with heaven. Worship Him. Live for Him with joy because of His glory and grace, because of His death and resurrection. His death means nothing if He wasn't raised from the grave. But if He was raised from the grave, it means everything. And He was, and so it does. Own your purpose. Worship and live for Him with joy because of His glory. Be willing to say, not just in the comfortable church, but in the chaotic culture, He is risen. He is risen indeed. He has saved me and He will save you if you will trust Him. We will all stand before Him one day. Submit to this Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, number four, tell others. Don't be like the Dead Sea where the gospel waters just pool and are stagnant. Be like a flowing river where it flows right through. Rivers of living water flowing from your heart. Telling others about this big Savior who can be their friend too through His dying and raising again and reigning and offering salvation as a free gift. See, yes, we are small and slow, but we have a big friend and Scripture promises us, church, though we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And nothing can separate us from His love. I'll close with a quote from a hymn called Great God of Wonders. And the last verse of that hymn goes something like this. Oh, may this strange, this matchless grace, this godlike miracle of love fill the whole earth with grateful praise and all the angelic choirs above. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? The lion who is the lamb, he dies. He is risen to live as Christ. And I am done. Let's pray. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, thank You. Thank You for undeserved grace. Thank You that You are applying Your salvation to Your enemies. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What good news. I pray for those who are maybe children and aren't trusting you that maybe adults in here who are resisting the gospel listening over the live stream. I pray that you would grant him to see the seriousness of their weakness, their slowness, their death in sin and trespasses, their need for a savior. 
so that they turn and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. I pray for those of us who know you, that you would strengthen us in this reminder of our risen Lord and his reign, that you would encourage us and strengthen us and comfort us and renew us in our devotion to you, our dedication to you, our hope in your promises. And grant us the boldness, grant us the faith and the faithfulness, no matter what comes, to walk with you and for you and to never lose the song in our hearts coming off of our lips. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Lord, we praise you. Thank you. Save and sanctify your people. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen.